text for this morning's sermon comes from Luke chapter 18, and I invite you to turn there and read with me. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her, or she will wear me out by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The last verse now of that text, verse 8 is uh, clearly a reference to the second coming. I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I think the ending now to the paragraph there in verse 8 is a clear indication that we should read this parable in connection with the last paragraphs of chapter 17 which have to do with the end of the age and the coming of the Son of Man. So let's back up to verse 20 of chapter 17. The Pharisees ask Jesus when the kingdom of God is coming. And what they meant by that was, when does Messiah come in great power and glory to overcome the Roman overlords establish Israel as a great nation of peace and spread righteousness through the world. And his answer to them would have been baffling to anybody who didn't accept Jesus as that Messiah. He said, uh, basically, the kingdom of God is already here in your midst. It should not be translated in verse 21 within you. The kingdom of God is within you because Jesus would have never said that to unbelieving Pharisees. Jesus is the king. He is in the midst. Wherever he is winning allegiance, the kingdom is present, being established. Now, verses 22 to 24 warn against the opposite mistake. Verse 21 warned against looking for catastrophic signs at the first coming of the Messiah. They weren't there. The first coming was quiet and hidden like a mustard seed. Verses 23 and 24 warn against thinking that the second coming of the Son of Man will be anything but catastrophic. If somebody says to you, 
Lo, here he is. Or, lo, there. He's wrong. Because as lightning flashes from one horizon to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. It won't be hidden as though one person could see it here and say, come over here and look. Or one over here, come over here and look. Everybody will see the Son of Man when he comes the second time. But verse 25 says, first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So the difference between the first coming and the second coming is the difference between a candle and a bolt of lightning. You can hide a candle under a bushel, not a bolt of lightning. Then verses 26 to 30, Jesus describes the days that will be leading up to the coming of the Son of Man. He compares the coming of the Son of Man first with the flood in Noah's day and then with the destruction of Sodom in the day of Lot in verse 27 first and then verse 29. And he says that the days before Christ's coming will be like the days leading up to those two catastrophes. Verse 27, they ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage. Verse 20. Eight, did I say eight? Twenty-seven, and now twenty-eight. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. And then verse 30, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, what we can expect is that the mass of humanity will be engaged in business as usual when the Son of Man comes. Verses 31 to 37 warn us not to be like Lot's wife just before the judgment fell on Sodom. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. That is, in the hour of crisis, don't be in love with the world. Don't turn back hankering after what you might be called upon to leave as the Lord's coming draws nigh. Remember, when the Son of Man comes, it says he will separate sheep and the goats. Two people will be sleeping together. It says here, one will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other left. And the disciples say in verse 37, where? Left where, Lord? And in Jesus' inimitable use of language, he says, where the body is, there are the vultures gathered together. Which I think can only mean left to the vultures. In other words, when the Son of Man comes, either you will be gathered to him in glory or left to the vultures in judgment. So Jesus makes it very clear that eternal life hangs on whether you're ready at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, with that background, doesn't Luke 18, 1 to 8, have a lot more impact? Remember, 
the last verse connects up with what we just said. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will the warnings not to be like Lot's wife have had any effect on the disciples? Will they have kept their lives free from the love of this world? Or will they have turned like Lot's wife and become a pillar of salt? Will they endure to the end in faith? Or when the Son of Man comes, will he find them simply besotted by the world with no fervent faith at all? Now, that's the issue for the disciples. He who endures to the end will be saved, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13. And the question they're left with is, how can we endure? How can we make sure that we don't become a Lot's wife that falls in love with the world and turns and is gone? How can we resist the relentless temptations to be desensitized to God's kingdom by the ever-present ordinariness of life? Notice in verse 28, did you did you notice that when judgment fell upon Sodom, Jesus didn't say it was because of sodomy? Isn't that interesting that he left out the major sin? In fact, he didn't mention one sin. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. And judgment fell. Why? Because the threat to godliness is not just persecution, not just gross sins, it's everyday life. The good things of life were godless. God wasn't in it. So remember, the disciples are in a battle. We're in a battle that most of the world don't even know exists. The battle against ordinariness. Against baking and working and driving and getting the car fixed and getting yourself dressed in the morning. The battle is to keep God in life. And not be desensitized to the eternal by the ever present temporal. The danger we face as the end draws near was stated by Jesus in Matthew 24 with an alarming Clarity in Matthew 24, 11. I, I choose to mention this text here because it links up to last week's message from Revelation 3. Listen to these words from Matthew 24, 11. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. But. He who endures to the end will be saved. Does that sound just like the way the text last week ended? Do you remember? He who endures to the end, not in coldness, not in lukewarmness, but in fervency of faith, or as this text says, love, that person will be saved. So when it comes to the end of our text, Luke 18, 8, and Jesus says, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? We could just as easily replace it from Matthew 24, will the Son of Man find love? Will he find fervency of love on the earth in our lives at Bethlehem? The danger we face is that our 
faith in Christ, our love for him will be swallowed up, not by persecution, but by eating and drinking and planting and harvesting and building. How can we be found with faith when the enemy we face is at home and everywhere? Jesus tells a parable now to answer that question. It's one of the few parables to be interpreted right at the outset, lest we miss the point. Verse one of chapter 18 of Luke is the is the interpretation to the parable. He said. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus answered to the question, how can you endure to the end and be saved? is pray, 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 and don't lose heart in your praying. The parable goes like this. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, vindicate me against my adversary. And for a while, he refused. And afterward, he said, Although I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll vindicate her or she'll wear me out by this continual coming. Now, don't be offended that Jesus compares God, the father, to an unjust judge. That happens several times in the Bible. For example, the most familiar one, Jesus coming is called the coming of what in the night? A thief, which is not very complimentary to Jesus. But clearly, when the New Testament talks like that, it doesn't mean Jesus is a thief. It means that the point of comparison is suddenness, unexpectedness. So here, the point of comparison is not that God is unjust, but that he gives in to prevailing prayer. Verse 7 draws out the lesson very clearly, which was stated in verse 1. And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? The answer, of course, is obviously God will vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night. That is, who always pray. Therefore, the point of the parable is cry to God day and night. Show yourself to be the elect. By acting like the way the elect always act, cry to God day and night. Or to use the words of verse 1, pray always. Don't lose heart. And if you do that, you will not become like Lot's wife, in love with the world and turn back into a pillar of salt. You will not be left in judgment as one is snatched away from your home. You will endure in faith and love and God will vindicate you when the son of man flashes from one horizon to the other. So always pray and don't lose heart. Now, what's driving me this morning in this sermon is that this is the last day of a week of concerted prayer. So we're at the end, right? The end of prayer week. That's a dangerous place to be, according to this parable. Don't end is what this parable is saying. If we end praying, 
We're in trouble, deep trouble. Some of us this week have had a great time. I've prayed more hours in the first week of 83 than any week in my life. And many of you have too. Now what? The word of Jesus to us this morning is don't stop praying. Don't peter out. Don't be fickle. Always, always, always pray. Cry to God day and night. Here's the way Peter put it in his first letter. The end of all things as at hand. Therefore, be sane and sober for your prayers. The closer the end draws near, the more threat against the warmth of the faith of the church and the greater the need for persevering prayer. The pressures of worldliness will be so great as the end draws near that only a few. Jesus said most men's love will grow cold. Only a few will make it. I hope we're among the number. Now, how does this parable How does this parable help us and encourage us to pray continually? The widow comes to an unjust judge and she pleads for help. Evidently, she's being oppressed by some rascal and she's helpless. And she asks the judge, vindicate me, help me, tell him to stop that. And that's us, right? The widow, weak, poor. No husband to stand up for her. Her only recourse, the judge, even though he's unjust, and our only recourse, God. Now, the argument of the parable is not, well, if you can get on the case of the judge long enough, he'll try to get you off his back by vindicating you. Therefore, if you get on God's case long enough, then to get you off his back, He will vindicate you. You could interpret the parable that way, but there are two reasons why you shouldn't. The first is that that would contradict clearly Luke 12, 32, where it says, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not reneging on any promises. He's eager to give you the kingdom. But the main reason why we shouldn't construe the parable that way is that there are two clues right here in the parable for the fact that God isn't like that judge. Notice in verse two, this judge neither feared God nor regarded man. And those two things are repeated in verse four, though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet I will vindicate her. Now, When it says, yet I will vindicate her, that must mean that fearing God or not fearing God and not regarding men are big obstacles to helping the widow. Right. If you don't fear God, it's an obstacle to get over, to help her. He gets over it by ulterior motives. But notice first. He doesn't fear God. And if fearing God is an obstacle to helping the widow, then presumably if you did fear God, you would incline naturally to help the widow. Right. That must mean that God isn't at all like this judge. 
Because if he inclines the people who fear him to give to the widow liberally and quickly, he must be that kind of God. And so by saying that this judge doesn't fear God and therefore doesn't answer her readily, he shows that God isn't at all like the unjust judge. And so the argument of the parable is an argument from lesser to greater. If by knocking on the door of the judge who doesn't have an ounce of justice in his body, you can still get your answer. How much more? By knocking on God's door continually, will you most certainly be answered because he's not like a judge at all. The second thing it says about the judge is that he has no regard for man. Now, we need to ask, um, since he doesn't know this widow and therefore doesn't care about her at all, has no regard to her, is God like that? When we approach him and pray to him, verse 7 makes it very, very clear that that's not the case. Because verse 7 says, Jesus says, And will not God vindicate his elect when they cry to him night and day? See that word elect? That's a dynamite word. That means... When we come to God and pray to him, we're not coming like a stranger, a widow whom he doesn't know or care about. He has chosen us, elected us, set his favor upon us, adopted us into his family, made us his children. When we knock on the door and say, it's me, his very different than when a strange widow knocks on an unjust judge's door and says, It's me who God knows our voice. We're his children. We're the chosen. We're the elect. And therefore, Jesus argues, same from lesser to greater. If an unjust judge who has a stranger whom he doesn't care about at all, knocking on his door, will give in to her. How much more will God who not only knows us, but chose us? Loves us, adopts us readily and lovingly answer our request. So the parable is intended to encourage us to get on with the business of praying because we have such a hopeful prospect of being answered. When Jesus asks at the end of the parable now in verse eight, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth coming at the end of this parable that could be also phrased like this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find that we have kept praying or not? Evidently, in Jesus' mind, prayer and faith stand and fall together. He who abandons prayer will lose his faith. His faith will shrivel up and die or become lukewarm. Consider this analogy. I find it helpful. Faith is the furnace of your life. Remember last sermon, 
last Sunday's sermon. Faith is the furnace of your life. The fuel of the furnace is grace in the word of God. Grace and the shovel by which you keep shoveling the furnace is what? Prayer. And if you lay down the shovel and say, I don't need that. Your burner's going to go out. There is no doubt about it. And when your burner goes out, Jesus spews you out of his mouth, according to Revelation chapter 3. Two will be sleeping in bed. One will be taken and one will be left. Two will be working at the office. One will be taken and the other will be left. And the test as to who will be taken and who will be left is not whether you made a decision for Jesus once. Not whether you walked an aisle once. Not whether you joined the church once. Not whether you did anything once. But whether you always pray and do not lose heart. Because prayer is the shovel that keeps the fire of faith aglow. And if it isn't a glow when the Son of Man comes, you'll be left to the vultures. Now, to be sure, it is clear from verse 7, the elect will be saved, will be vindicated. But what is it that marks the elect in verse 7? The elect always, without exception, cry to God. Day and night. That's the test of whether you are a child or not. Oh, how essential at the end of prayer week is the resolve not to lay down the shovel, but to keep on shoveling right on through 1983. If anybody is saying to himself right now, Well, that daily, earnest, impassioned prayer that the pastor seems to be talking about this week that makes you get up early in the morning or stay up late at night or break away at noon and get alone, that, that's for the spiritual heavyweights like deacons and pastors. I, I'm going to make my way to heaven um, more, more uh, coolly and without those pious excesses. You're deceived, greatly deceived, because you will not be saved if you do not continue in prayer and do not lose heart until Jesus comes. There are two reasons why I can say that. First, because without persevering prayer, faith becomes lukewarm, and as we saw last week, lukewarm People are spit out of the Savior's mouth when he comes. And the second reason is this. Luke 18.1 is the word of the sovereign Lord Jesus in command to his church. Always pray and don't lose heart. Prayerlessness is disobedience. 
If therefore you say, I plan not to pray night and day, you are planning to disobey. And those who plan to disobey and follow through will be left to the vultures. Because it says in Hebrews 5, 9, he made eternal salvation to everyone who obeys him. None of this fiddly diddly, easy believism stuff as though you can confess him with your mouth and live like the devil. Or ignore him in the hours of your day and consider yourself a child of God. It is not so. Now, let me close with a couple of things here. Um, you remember last Sunday night, one of the practical things that was mentioned, I think Shar mentioned it, was reading books on prayer. Here's a little book called Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds that has made a whale of a difference in my prayer life in the last two years. Um, E.M. Bounds was a, an old Methodist preacher who died in 1913. 128 pages, little pages, short chapters, perfect devotional, inspirational reading. This will help you keep praying in 1983. I ordered 100 from a discount house. They only had 36. So they sent me 36. And you know what the first service did? They bought them all, except for three. So if you're on a race afterwards, um, I assume that means that many of you would like to have this little book too. It costs two forty-five. I got it for for one sixty-nine with with postage. I would sell them for one seventy-five. So if you want to have this, sign a sheet of paper and I'll put in another order and we'll get them in about four weeks probably. I promise you this this will make a whale of a difference in your life. It'll it'll keep you from being among the lukewarm and those who are left behind when the Son of Man comes. The book table, for those of you who don't know, is out here. There are other books for sale besides this one, and many as good as this one that I just haven't read yet, I'm sure. So look that book table over. Now let me close with just this summary statement. The word of Jesus Christ to Bethlehem Baptist Church this morning is just as if he were standing here next to me saying, Say it again. That's right. Is right out of Luke 18.1. He interpreted it for us. It's that you always pray. And not lose heart or to use the words of verse seven, that you confirm that you are among the elect by crying to the Lord day and night. That's that's plain, uncomplicated about that. And so I urge you, please, as prayer week comes to an end tonight with sharing, don't quit. Don't quit. Resolve to keep right on going. It'll make all the difference in eternity for you and a whale of a difference for us at Bethlehem. In the year to come, two reasons why you should keep on praying. One, the negative one. We cannot neglect to hear these. There is threat in what Jesus says. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. If you lay down the shovel, the burner will go out for lack of fuel. And you will be found lukewarm when he comes. He'll spit you out of his mouth and you'll be left behind. But the main reason of the parable is a positive one. He's not like the unjust judge. He's liberal. He's quick. He loves to answer because he is not the kind who has needs that have to be fulfilled. He's bountiful. And he is not the kind that is 
disinterested to his people. He chose them. And therefore, the word to us this morning is confirm your chosenness. Cry out to the Lord day and night. Always pray and do not lose heart.